This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Welcome to another episode of Plato's Cave, a film criticism show and podcast. I'm Stuart Richards, your host for tonight, and with me, joining me in the cave, is my fantastic co-hosts, Emma Westwood and Cerise Howard. Hello! Hello! Uh, yeah, hi. <laughs> <laughs> Before we kick into tonight's reviews, tonight is our final night of April amnesty. Uh, Cerise, do you want to walk us through what's on offer? Well, sure. For folks as might consider subscribing on this last day of uh, the pre-Radiothon little uh, conscience tweaker that is April Amnesty. Uh, you could call 93881027 and subscribe to the station or any show, for example, Plato's Cave. And you could go in the winning to win, for example, a Melbourne International Film Festival mini pass uh, to the 2018 MIF running from the 2nd to the 19th of August. Emma? Oh, uh, what else do we have? We have Melbourne Writers Festival. Did you say that? You said MIF Mini Pass, I didn't said you? Myth. Yes, great. That's good. Um, that's very exciting. There's Grog. We like that. Scotchman's Hill Winery. Responsible drinking of alcohol there. Uh, what else do we have? Scully and Trombone. Yes. Gift voucher for hats and Fancy gloves hats. and wonderful things. Fancy There's gloves. There's lots of really great things, but the only problem is um, we probably don't have the capacity to take the phone calls tonight, so they probably need to get on the web. Business hours or go to... Uh, Business hours, it's the last day. Is it? It's the last day. It's the end day. of April. It's <gasps> the end of April, yeah. Uh, somebody could probably make a call if need be on 93881027 or get online at RRR. Uh, .org.au <laughs> Okay, on tonight's show we have Andre Zviaginsev uh, where he presents a bleak, beautiful and devastating search for a missing child in Loveless. We will see if Steven Soderbergh pushes the conventions of the psychological thriller with Unsane, which is shot entirely on the iPhone 7 Plus. But first, the life of acclaimed singer-songwriter Jeffrey Grumel Unipingu is brought to the screen in Paul Williams' documentary, Grumel. Following his tragic passing, the documentary's closing night screening at last year's Melbourne International Film Festival was brought into question. However, with the support of Gumati elder David Junger Junger Unipingu and his community to use his name, voice and image, the film was presented at the closing night gala to a standing ovation. The film has since been released commercially to critical acclaim. Blind from birth, Unipingu found purpose and meaning through songs and music inspired by his community and country on Elko Island in far northeast Arnhem Land. Living a traditional Yongu life, his breakthrough album Gurumul brought him to a crossroads as audiences and artists around the world, such as Sting, began to embrace his music. Guided by his producer and a longtime friend Michael Honan, manager Mark T. Gross, with intermittent narration from his aunt Susan Dungle Gurawiwi, the film explores the life and career of this fiercely private artist on the verge of global adoration and the struggles he and those closest to him faced in balancing his wishes and the furthering of his career. Just like the music, this is a truly effective film. What did everyone else think, Emma? Oh, I'm first. Mm. Yeah, this is, um, I guess it's quite fortuitous that we're doing this uh, the week after that uh, we, well, at least Cerise and I spoke about um, Song Keepers and um, it was a a really interesting. I thought that there was a 
Well, there's links between this mo- these movies in many ways. Nana Sen, who directed um, Song Keepers, actually shot a lot of the footage that was used in this, I noticed at the end. So a lot of the, the older footage. But um, uh, also it, it was just interesting and what I think impacted on me with uh, Song Keepers was this idea of uh, cultural synergy or listening to each other rather than cultural imposition, mm-hmm. although Lisa did pick up, she felt it was a little romanticised, Song Keepers, um, and considering this was missionaries that were depicted, and rightly so, that she did pick that up. I think I got caught up a little in the romance of it because it was a beautiful, beautiful story. And in this, it's in Gurumul, it's the same the same uh, idea that's being presented because I didn't, and I think that when we watch this sort of thing as um white Australians or any Australians, I guess, um, we're looking for that moment of uh, discomfort where you you see that there's uh, some sort of condescension or cultural condescension that that comes into play. But what was impressive about this is I felt that I didn't see it from any of the Australian characters. I did see it with Sting (laughs) and Sting came across as an utter wanker and someone who just assumed that he would know his songs and assumed that Gurumul would know how wonderful he was, imposed the song that he was going to sing on him that wasn't in his language in a whole lot of ways. And that was the glaring, that was the infuriating moment of the film. I thought it was interesting because the filmmakers didn't really present it explicitly like be angry, but it was just from the information that was presented and what we saw, it did make you feel angry. I, so I saw this film at the closing night. Uh, screening of the Melbourne International Film Festival, where it was really unsure if the screening would take place. Um, and a lot of his uh, sort of family and a lot of the um, sort of the various personalities in the film were present at the closing night screening. Um, and because um, he had recently passed, it was more than just a film screening. Um, it was sort of a celebration of his life. Um, and it was an incredibly moving experience. Um, So his auntie Susan was like three rows behind me. Um, And so it was an incredible privilege to even be present at uh, that screening. But when that sting scene played, the entire audience erupted in laughter. I mean, it was a real, um, it was a real comedic moment where sort of Sting comes in and he's like, "Oh, you're blind," and um, and Grumel just doesn't care and he's laughing at him and he just does not know why he has to sing this song, um, which is a stalker song, isn't it? And, yes, think, with, yeah. with the line, yeah. "I'll be watching you," yes, foremost yes. in it. Which I is, can't you see? Yeah, it's, uh, which kind which of links to our final, uh, our final film tonight, uh, Unsane. Uh, oh, in due right. course. Mm. In due Jumping course. ahead there, Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Um, yeah, this this was a pretty fascinating documentary. I have to confess to having been very uh, drowsy and probably actually quite jet-lagged and confused when I watched it, so I'm not sure that I saw the whole film, but what I saw <laughs> did certainly include Sting being a prize pillock. And it was, it was always going to be either him or Bono, wasn't it? One of them was going to turn up in this because one of them turns up in every music documentary, no matter how far removed from their worlds you would think. And and one or the other of them invariably then is a prize pillock. In this case, it was Sting. Um, <laughs> With his giant beanie. Uh, yes. 
<laughs> I think he was trying to be, I don't know, of the earth at that stage. That was him being, you know, Useful. keeping it real. <laughs> but um, to, you mentioning that the, the conditions under which you saw the, the film, Stuart, is interesting because I, I do remember when uh, the, the sad news of his passing was announced, there was certainly a lot of uncertainty about whether the film wouldn't even, or wouldn't so much just close myth, but would actually be seen anytime soon. And uh, my understanding is uh, Gurumul had only three days before mm. his death given approval for the film to, yeah. to uh, it signed off on it, said, yes, I am. And there haven't been any amendments to yes, the Yes, exactly. Mm. And I think that's yeah. really interesting, mm. really critical. There's been no one then using that sort of rose-tinted glasses thing to add a nostalgic mm. look back and speak of him in a way that um, uh, would, would almost certainly be different despite anyone's intentions. Uh, mm. uh, it would be a remembrance rather than a, an in-the-moment uh, account of uh, this wonderful human being's uh, really complex life and wonderful music, music that melds uh, Western cultures and Western classical musical forms with Aboriginal musical forms, mm. and uh, in in a way that, to, to my ears, is is absolutely mesmerising, transfixing. Um, I, I don't really know of anything else quite like it, mm. Like, mm. like his music. But then the, I think what the, the film is so much about is not just so much him, but what how he relates to his own culture and how that isn't always easily reconcilable with making it in the Western world where you're expected to be in places at certain times. It's, you know, you've got, it's showtime. Mm. You've, you've got to board a plane when the plane is going to leave or you miss the plane and the opportunities. And I think it's really wonderful to get uh, an insight into uh, a mindset. It's a cultural mindset and it's his mindset, but something that he's probably had to struggle with as well. But this, this matter of it being more important that he attend... Uh, particular indigenous ceremonies and and be there for his people. Mm. Mm. Uh, it's a matter of priorities, and I, I think that's it, it's something a lot of us could learn from this. Mm. Which is what I'm going to claim next time I'm late to get to the show. <laughs> you know, I'm just connecting with some more fundamental existential. I was very busy uh, learning. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, learning from my people. <laughs> I really love that we do get access to a lot of these communities and these people. Um, this reminded me of another film, uh, Zach's Ceremony, which screened at the Human Rights Arts and Film Festival last year, where it was very similar and there, there was this unprecedented access to ceremonies and um, sort of and meetings. Um, and I, I felt very similar with this film. That what mm. we what we witness and um, the conversations that take place are sort of are unprecedented. I think um, because of the the relationships that are built up between the filmmakers and the um, and the sort of the, the uh, Grumel's family. I was interested by how much archival footage they actually had right mm. back to the time when he was a child, and not just photography, it was actually moving picture imagery as well. I know I'm um, the similar age to Gurumul and um, there's no moving picture photo um, imagery of me from uh, my childhood. There's some of mine, but they're never going to see the light of day. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't have a choice. They yeah. dredged it up. But, um, yeah, that, uh, 
this idea of that, uh, the, the cultural melding that worked so lovely and, and was, or and the disharmony that was, uh, I think the disharmony with Sting was emphasised by the the stuff that really came about at the end with the the cultural, the the sorry, the orchestral work, mm. um, because that really showed the process of how it was Gurumul teaching the Western musicians his language and them learning to translate it into, uh, into um, you know, into I- instruments that they wouldn't, wouldn't usually make those sounds mm. or wouldn't usually be used in that way before. And he was very much con- in- instructing them, saying, you know, making the sounds over and over and over again until they, you know, could get that that heartbeat of the, the the didgeridoo and 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 so forth and the different animal noises mm. and it was so impressive i mean you know that i felt that it elevated the music into that that cultural it was so, the cultural melding was just so symbolic of what can happen when two cultures work well yeah. together it just can come it can become something so much more than its individual parts and i really love that in these sequences they go for quite some time um so we mm. get to sort of hear this sort of repetition of the music until they get it right um so i really love the sort of the embracement of the musicality of yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it was too overly romanticized either like with the um Michael and his manager I forget his name but his managers um that the when there was a a time when things seemed to be running away from Gorimal and that's when he sort of sat back a little bit mm. and in his absence showed that that he wasn't complicit in in uh, touring in the way that they wanted him to, and I think maybe that showed it showed them in a good light, not in a bad light, but mm. it did show that they were maybe getting a little carried away. They maybe thought, and the way these things happen, and they happen to us in white culture, we find ourselves swept up on in some sort of wave where sometimes you think, "What am I doing? I'm spinning," mm. and he was able to take stock and go. That's it. Maybe not through um, speaking, but mm. through through his actions, and that they respected that, and they didn't um, hold it against him. And they said that in the end, it, they maintained their relationship with him, and that was the most important mm. thing. Which was yeah. really lovely. You're talking before about the the, the access here. Like there's there's, there's uh, we're privy to things that ordinarily we we don't see and it's, it is a real privilege and you have to understand that the filmmakers have won the trust of a community over many years before this film saw the light of day and I continue uh, to have that trust. and continue yeah. to yeah. much as you mentioned Zach's ceremony before as well I think a similar process is there where filmmakers it might have been an indigenous filmmaker involved in that one but there still there would have been a whole crew a whole production there would have been money from Screen Australia and funding bodies which are principally white run mm. and you know, there's mm. there would have been all these different pressures there um, not only within the, the film and the narrative that unfolds within the film we need to tour we need to go to the States the plane leaves today that sort of pressure but I'm sure mm. that the funding bodies here were saying to we've been funding this film for a while now and <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and um, I think it's it's, it's admirable that I mean, perhaps do do sense a little bit of a shift that by degrees white folk here and perhaps listening to the first peoples here and mm. learning some things and getting a, a bit of a sense of perspective. I, I like to think this is mm. perhaps a little utopian because obviously there are a lot of problems still yeah. to be solved. 
but um, I, a film like this does give me hope. Mm. And, and not least because there's such beauty within the film too. The music is exquisite. It's stunning. And um, and, and Gorimal's character shines through. He's just a really beautiful human being. Yes, I love the the quiet moments in the hotel rooms and mm. the little jokes they share. And I mean, the friendship between um, Gorimal and Michael is is very special. And I'm really glad that that was sort of captured. I yeah, think. yeah, that was that really translated just by looking at them together. Mm. I hope that the the permission, giving the permission for this film to come out um, hasn't had cultural implications in their community. I hope this, because it feels like it's a good thing, but because uh, otherwise we wouldn't get to listen mm. to this wonderful music. Um, so I do hope that that being able to propagate his legacy is a really is a really yeah. good thing and is not impacting because I'm not entirely aware of how that does impact on the local communities mm. that decision. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Loveless. Xenia Mariana Spivak and Boris Alexei Rosen are in the midst of a divorce with much animosity towards each other. Their 12-year-old son, Alyosha Matvi Novikov, is caught up in the middle of their bitter fights. Both parents have moved on following their separation. Boris is now with Masha Marina Valaseva, a young woman who's pregnant with his child, and Xenia is with Anton Andros Case, an older and wealthier man with an adult daughter who lives abroad. When Xenia realises Alyosha has been missing for two days, the police see this as the simple case of a runaway child and expect the boy to return home within a day or two. When Alyosha does not return, a volunteer group specialising in the search for missing persons takes over the case and promptly um, initiates a thorough procedure to locate the boy. When initially felt as a a simple thriller, it develops into an uncompromising film about the state of the family in which all values of selflessness and empathy have given way to selfishness and narcissism. The film won the jury prize at the 2017 Cannes Film Festival and was nominated for the Best Foreign Language Film at this year's Oscars. What did everyone think, Cerise? Well, this also just won a bunch of prizes in Moscow at the inaugural East-West Golden Arch Awards, which I was in attendance for and part of a jury. Oh, fantastic. um, And I absolutely did not vote for this film because I really didn't like it, even though I um, was (laughs) extremely keen that we cover it because I've really liked some of his other work in particular, his previous film. Leviathan, which mm. I loved, and um, so why uh, didn't you like this compl- compared to Leviathan? Because Therese? that that film had something to say about people I um, find rather more interesting. Here, it seems an extremely obvious and simple target that target uh, the bourgeoisie um, in Russia, but it could be anywhere. Just uh, th- this film is so blunt in its critique mm. of uh, shallow consumerist society um it's so much so that i mean the the symbolism is really leaden in this film it's rather more mystical and leviathan like that amazing Mm. whale skeleton that's mysteriously just on a beach here we have a a woman with a a shirt that reads russia on it and she's on a treadmill i mean it's (laughs) it's it's really not that sophisticated and she's always on her phone all of the yeah. particularly all, all of yeah. the women are always on their phone taking selfies and uh-huh. um and i th- I, th- I thought that was a bit on the nose I yeah thought. there's a lot in this that's a bit on the nose it's, it's an immaculately made film you know there's not a shot out of place it's everything is as he wanted it to be i don't have a, a shadow of a doubt but i also just didn't like it it rubbed me up the wrong way throughout 
Um, I just really thought it's um, much like Michael Haneke's last film, Happy End, was mm. quite underwhelming. This is this is like just shooting fish in a barrel now, just going, yep, the bourgeoisie um, are basically uh, got a, a lot they need to do to be redeemable human beings again because they've just lost sight of, of uh, values. I mean, when you lose, I mean, it's not really about losing a child. This is just a, a, a little... A statement on the state of life in Russia presently, but it really could be anywhere. It doesn't feel particularly Russian. It's Russianness, even though yes, she is Russia on the treadmill. It, it just doesn't She's matter. Russian on the treadmill. She's yeah. Russian on the treadmill. Yeah. Well, she sure is. <laughs> yeah, it's um. Uh, I, I was really disappointed with this because I had a real sense of anticipation. Mm. I really liked Leviathan, and its satire was rather more sophisticated and fun. And while. Leviathan was a film actually given official funding uh, and, and then such that the Ministry, Minister of Culture, I think, said, we will not fund your next film. Uh, Zvi Agensev goes and gets a film with private funding and it's a co-production between four nations. And th- this film, yes, it says things to say about the state of contemporary Russia, but really they may as well have funded this because there's nothing here that's particularly going to upset anyone really because it's just too obvious. Mm. There are some nods to Ukraine though. There's various news stories about the invasion of Ukraine. Well, in, in general, apocalyptic um, yeah. mumblings. News stories. And, yeah, 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 yeah. That was kind of like its soundtrack in some ways. Mm. But, um, yeah, I, I find his films, I feel like I should have a strong reaction. I, I didn't even have a strong reaction to Leviathan, to be totally mm. honest. And, and the same with this film. Um, I didn't dislike it. I didn't love it. It, it, it was... You know, it wasn't a bad way to spend the time, but it was certainly something that didn't have a strong impact on me. Although I did find that the characters were <laughs> very, very barbed and she was probably one of the most hateful mothers I've, I've seen. Apart from being truly malevolent, she's just, um, as an average mum, was probably one of the most hateful mothers. I did like the way that... But there's a few hateful mothers in the film. Yeah, there are, I think that um, there, there's a real disconnect between um, children and their parents. Like even the, the, the wealthy man that you said mm. that she goes off with um, whose uh, daughter is living overseas. You can tell even though the daughter, when she Skypes him, is smiling and all full of love and love you, Daddy, doesn't want to come home and see Daddy at all. Mm. Um, but, uh, mm. and I did like the way that it was presented that the mother's um, <laughs> dislike for the mm. child, awful terrible dislike for this child was presented out of the context of um, the 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 divorce that was going on. So you just saw a mother being mean right at the start. I thought mm. that was quite a nice way that played out as well as this child. No wonder this child didn't want to be in that environment. But, uh, but yeah, it just, yeah, there wasn't, I don't feel like there's a lot to say about it, to be totally honest. There are a few really lovely moments in the film. Maybe lovely is not a word, but... Loveless. 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 Moments. It was certainly the title was a good title. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> little clue there in the title. Yeah. But there are so many in the in the search for this boy. There are so many moments where sort of the meeting's over um, and sort of what they're going to do next has been decided. But the shot will keep on going. I mean, there's one mm. moment where there's the the school teacher um, and everyone leaves, and there's just this lingering take of her just kind of carrying on and going on about her business. As that's if, very much his style, though, as a director, yeah. isn't he? That's that's something that it's interesting that you mentioned Michael Haneke's mm. Happy End because that did the same mm. thing, you know, that um, sort but no of no one cares. Out. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of, yeah. But there is that moment, I won't sort of say specifically what it is because it'll give it away, but there's that moment of the emotional crescendo between the two parents at the very, very end, mm. um, which I thought was fantastic. It was so well written. The, emo- the, the performance of the two leads was incredible, I mm. thought. Mm-hmm. It's really curious. This film's proven much more polarising than I'd expected because it has absolutely its champions. It's getting mm. garlanded everywhere. But um, I know I wasn't alone on this jury feeling, well, how on earth did this win, even though it was almost certainly somehow going to. We had a sense of inevitability about mm. it winning, but also just going, I, I don't know. I, yeah. um, I, the, the thing I actually found most interesting in it was this peculiar business around uh, the child's father having to maintain some sort of a charade, a happy family charade because of a workplace in which people needed to be married. And it reminded me of The Lobster because it was as ludicrous yes, yes. and contrived. It was some sort um, of religious yeah. um, proprietor yeah. or I something I actually thought like that, that yeah. maybe the film was going to go down a lobster-like path because that was just so farcical. That would have been much better. I would have loved yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, I'd, have lo- I'd have loved that too. Instead, without giving too much away, it goes down a very... Um, very assiduously down an Antonioni-esque path, a very particular film. That, I mean, the, the director himself has cited uh, a very key work in that director's oeuvre that um, you know, concerns missingness. Mm. And um, uh, ultimately, and come out of this film with admiration for its craft, but uh, I feel very unaffected. Yeah. Mm. And that's a disappointment. Yeah. Uh, I found sort of the very ending I found to be incredibly frustrating. Did you like the actual film though, Stuart? Um, Well, the more I think about it, the more I actually do like it. Mm, mm. Um, I think because it doesn't go down the path you expect it to and the more I think about that and what it's about in terms of... um, so, so being so kept up in your own issues that you forget about the ones you're supposed to be caring about. I do like that. Um, there were just some moments where I did think it was a bit on the nose. Um, you know, they're not, they're selfish, so they're always on their phones. Yeah, I thought yeah. Th- I thought that was a bit of a, a, a sort of a bit like a lame critique of technology almost. Mm. I think. Mm. Yeah, well, I think the square skewered the bourgeoisie much more effectively oh, yes, than this film yes. does, and and yeah. really makes the audience feel complicit and uncomfortable. And this mm. just keeps. For me, it keeps the audience at a distance and I really feel a huge amount of discomfort aside from that, that scene early on when they really do fight and the child's just listening in. I mean, that scene is excruciating That's and powerful. powerful. And it's so that, well that poor shot. child. Yeah. The, the yeah. grief of that child yeah. was yeah. just, that, yeah. was, that was very palpable. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but it's just that what follows just doesn't mm. add up to yeah. it. Doesn't, it doesn't yeah. follow through on the promise of that devastation. Mm. <laughs> so not a lot of love for Loveless. <laughs> Three, triple. Ah. With its world premiere at Berlinale, Soderbergh's Unsane sees Claire Foy play Sawyer Valentin, a woman who is pursued by a stalker. After moving to a new city to escape her stalker, where she unwittingly, unwittingly signs documents committing herself to the hospital's psychiatric ward, Sawyer calls the police, but they are unwilling to intervene as she herself has signed documents committing herself to this hospital. After an aggressive altercation with fellow patient Violet, played by Juno Temple, she, um, an orderly, um, she sees an orderly who she mistakes for her stalker. Um, 
where her stay has been upgraded to a week. During the week, Sawyer begins to see her stalker David Stein at the hospital, believing that he has followed her from Boston and is posing as one of the orderlies to get close to her. This causes Sawyer to lash out in an intense quest for freedom. Shot on the iPhone 7 Plus and edited and scored with Apple technology, Soderbergh has created an intense and intimate film that uses the camera to put us in the position to interrogate Sawyer's stability. The dodgy lining and grainy images serve the gloomy atmosphere of this prison-like hospital. So what did everyone else think? Is this a critique of neoliberalism's stranglehold on the healthcare system or is it a run-of-the-mill thriller? (laughs) Neoliberalism is a difficult word to get out quickly. (laughs) Yeah, well, yes, I think it's a bit of both, actually. It's um, uh, sort of in the the mould of... Those 90s thrillers, I would say, that it was kind of playing on that or it kind of becomes that, shall we say. It starts... I, I, I kind of... Inno- I, I enjoyed the the paranoia of it. It was quite a delightfully paranoid little yeah. film. And um, it starts um, with you wondering which... whether she is uns- unsane. Do you unsane. like that? <laughs> whether unsane. she is Not insane. Not a word, people. <laughs> Not a word. <laughs> Whether she's sane or not, <laughs> and um, and then it it does become a bit you know more apparent. But I do like the way that Claire Foy plays this character. She's um, she's really very remarkable. Before this, I'd only seen her play mm. royalty, um, not just in one role, but only in uh, well in the Crown, but also as Anne Boleyn in the um, TV version of Wolf Hall. And she's she's very impressive. And she fell into well, I felt that I fell into her American accent very quickly. Mm. I didn't have any problems taking that on board. I didn't take have any problems taking on her character. And I and I like the way that she wasn't, even though she was paranoid understandably so she wasn't um she wasn't a little uh scared little um shaking leaf she was her her way of um combating this was with her fists Mm. (laughs) pretty much and um so that played out that plays out really nicely with the with the paranoia but when it becomes more of a uh straight thriller i think that's when it it, it's sort of lost some of its some of its appeal. Mm. Um, the iPhone itself, the idea of using an iPhone, well, so be it. I don't know whether I really um, was aesthetically enamoured or even aware of what I was mm. really watching. It was very much wide widescreen, like almost fisheye-ish. The, very. The image, yeah. yeah it which, really messed with perspective. Yeah, it did. Foreshortening. Per- perfect. Messes with per- perspective. So it was that idea of playing into psychology. Um, it had a strangely jaunty little music soundtrack which I thought was interesting mm. and a very nice compact credit sequence I've never seen uh, I think in recent years such a short credit sequence which must have something to do with the fact that it's got a little crew mm. but um yeah it's I I I did enjoy this film I mm. really enjoyed it Cerise. yeah I quite enjoyed it um it in a way it wasn't it not terribly fresh there there's the novelty of the particular aesthetic that is brought about through use of uh, 
now such a ubiquitous piece of equipment as the iPhone 7, she says, looking at hers. Uh, <laughs> but not a plus. Oh, you don't a have plus. a plus. I don't have a plus. No. I don't even know what that plus bestows upon. Anyway, it's not important. <laughs> Bigger. But the only other phone that I'm aware of, uh, only other film I'm aware of <laughs> that's used a, a, um, a smartphone for shooting is Tangerine, which yeah. is... Yeah, I was thinking about that the entire yeah, time. Yeah, and which is a yeah. really beautiful film, mm. which actually makes a real asset out of that limitation and... Yeah. and Manages they to both have very overblown colour schemes, though. They do. Well, this do. is more overblown in a beige sort of way, and that was more over overblown in a neon garish sort of yeah. way, and I definitely preferred that. But this, this was still a really interesting film. Um, it, it reminded me of a couple of key films. One we surely mentioned last week in uh, acknowledging the passing of Milos Forman. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. In as much as we, we've got someone who's committed themselves to an institution, things snowball. Uh, similarly, uh, Shock Corridor, the Samuel Fuller hard-boiled classic of many years ago. Yeah. Uh, there's a subplot involving a character I don't wish to give too much away about, but there are Shock Corridor overtones to it, as there are just to the way and that people, this place is run. And if people can't yeah. see that film, they should just watch the trailer online. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's such a great film. Um, it's worth their while hunting it down. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but look, this this is neither more or less than what a, what was promised. Really, mm. I mean, mm. it's called Unsane. It, you, you, <laughs> the, the the bar's not that high from a film that has a fundamental typo in its title. So <laughs> it's, it was enjoyable. I took, mm. I got a certain amount of delight out of it, doing some very obvious things and one or two surprises. But actually, there was nothing in this that I was gobsmacked by no developments that I really didn't see coming no. and the timing of some key lashing out moments I saw coming a mile away as well. <laughs> yeah. I, I, nothing made me flinch. I mean, Tangerine really uses the iPhone for its benefit. I mean, it gets into these really small spaces. It uses the intimacy of mm. holding such a small camera. But in Unsane, I don't think it really did that. I thought no, it was I, a huge wasted opportunity. I'm also interested, like this this idea, oh, it's shot on an iPhone. It may be, but I'm sure there was quite a lot of post-production um, yeah. tampering that went into that, mm. that as well. Uh, it's not just an iPhone edited on iMovies and then projected on big screens, let's put it that way. Yeah. And it's sort of intriguing too. I mean, look, I, I like the way Soderbergh is playing with film form and he seems to, in his retirement from mm. filmmaking, this seems to be what he's doing. He's doing a John Farnham. It's still going. <laughs> exactly. Well, you look at something like this compared to, uh, shall we say, what was that last film that he did that with Chan Channing Tatum? Magic Mike. No, so, subsequent? no, no. It's past that one. It was the one where it oh, was the, about the heist movie with yes. um, Daniel Craig and That's all it. of that. The heist mm. movie that was um, uh, Ocean's Ocean's Eleven for um, uh, sort of rednecks. Mm. That one, very different movie. Let's put it that <laughs> way. But um, yeah, you know, it. I think this is worthwhile seeing, though. I really do for something that's a little bit enjoyable mm. and um, good jump screwy scares. film. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Only um, I didn't jump, oh, 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 and I wasn't scared. <laughs> Stewie was. <laughs> I, I may have yelped. Um, all right, that was the quickest film review I think we've done. Uh, so Unsane is playing in general release now. You have been listening to Emma Westwood, Cerise Howard, and myself, Stuart Richards. Thank you to the incredible Faith Everard, who edits the podcast version of this show, and to Carl Chapman on the decks tonight. 
This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.